so much, Steve, for being with me today on the Wave Capital guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. I hope you're doing well today. Thank you so much for joining me. I am. Thank you for asking. Absolutely. When you think of relationship building, Steve, how would you define relationship building? What does it mean to you? Well, I think being part of a, a college athletic department, it is uh, greatly about relationships. So you have so many relationships with so many different constituents and so many different stakeholders. And one thing about communications with them and building relationships is everyone's different. It, it, it's hard to put a sort of a, a broad brush on how you communicate and how you develop relationships with, with different groups because they are so different. It's what makes uh, college athletics uh, kind of unique in, in so many ways that there are so many different stakeholders from, from uh, the student athletes and coaches and other administrators uh, to season ticket holders, donors, um, faculty, uh, boards of trustees, the governor, whomever it may be. There's a lot of people that have an interest in what we do in a college athletics department. And building those relationships, maintaining those relationships, um, recruiting is the lifeblood of any program. Uh, no matter how uh, successful your program has been in the past, um, it's always that next recruiting class, that recruiting class two years down the road, three years down the road. Uh, because no matter how great your facilities are, no matter how great your academic uh, prowess is, uh, you have to have student athletes to be able to go out and perform uh, to play. Uh, you can have Hall of Fame coaches, but if they don't have talented, experienced student athletes, uh, those Hall of Fame coaches are going to struggle as well. And we've seen that in past years when, when for whatever reasons, our, our teams maybe uh, weren't as strong as they were before, that um, even Hall of Fame coaches can have ups and downs. Um, so building those relationships, it starts with recruiting, uh, but it also isn't just about recruiting um, you know, people that can hit jump shots and throw a touchdown pass. It's recruiting donors. It's uh, recruiting faculty to understand the time demands that student athletes may have. Um, so developing relationships is, is really at the core of what we do in successful college athletics. And you're my 24th guest on this podcast. I wanted to mention that and the 23 people before you have really talked about relationship building and what it means to them and how it's really defined their careers. And you talk about the position you're in in the uh, athletic department and how you know Carolina is known to be a championship caliber, championship contender, and championship winning uh, athletic organization of the university that you know represents uh, the finest student athletes, you know, some of the finest student athletes in the world. Um, when you think of your job on a day-to-day -day basis, how much relationship building would you say you do and what it makes you excited about the relationship building aspect of your job and some of the things you mentioned? Well, what I do in communications is, you know, we're the storytelling arm of Carolina Athletics. And in, in the past, maybe prior to 10 years ago, uh, most of our storytelling was, was developing relationships with external media, whether it was local newspapers, national newspapers, uh, magazines like Sports Illustrated, um, the local TV, um, ESPN, if they were coming in to do a game or the other networks. Um, now we're kind of a content um, building organization all of our own, as are most um, uh, companies, of, of whether you're in sports or other types of industry. Um, we tell our story. Now, we're also helping the media tell our story, but we're developing so much content on our own to be able to tell our own story. Um, and, and developing those relationships with student athletes. 
um, to be able to tell their story, developing those relationships with coaches so that they have the trust in you that you're going to tell the stories that put them uh, in the best light, that they'll help, help your program. Um, still maintaining relationships uh, with, the, with the media, whether it's local media or national media, uh, because still that, that publicity that you get through, through external media is still very important. Um, still, still is much larger than, than the content and, and the access that our own fans have. That's a lot. But when you get on a, a ESPN broadcast or you have a national uh, uh, newspaper story or, or uh, you know, in our markets, uh, in, in Raleigh, in Charlotte, in Durham, the people that cover us, you know, cover the state. And, and so to develop those relationships, to be able to have a trust factor um, that the coaches and student athletes trust you to tell their story, uh, that the media trusts you to, to be able to share a story with them and help them cultivate a story as well. So and every relationship that we build is different. Um, some student athletes, uh, it's very personal, it's very one-on-one. -on -one. Um, other, other coaches, you know, depending on how much access they give you, how much, how much they want to be out there in the public forum. Um, so you have to, you know, we have, we're not just one sports organization. We're not an NFL team with one team, one group of owners, one group of coaches and players. We have 28 varsity programs here. Uh, with 19 or 20 different head coaches and 800 student athletes, so we have we have branches all over the place in terms of how we develop those relationships, and and it, it is it is how you communicate, and and you can't just say well this is the only way we're going to communicate to build to build a relationship, whether it's internally on the team or whether it's external with your different audiences, um, you know you, you're not going to have one different one for every person. But you certainly have to have multiple to be able to adapt to what works best in that situation with that person. Well, give me a, an example of, you know, game day when you're covering a Carolina basketball game or Carolina football game, soccer game, baseball game. I mean, you're in the communications arm of the athletic department. So talk about the preparation. Talk about how you're working with your team on a daily basis or leading up to a big game. Well, one of the most important things that, that anybody in my role does is talk to the TV personnel before a game to help them kind of set the scene. And, uh, you know, if, if you've got someone like Dan Shulman and Jay Billis from ESPN, and, you know, they may be doing three, four, five games a week uh, across the country, different conferences, uh, different teams within our conference, and then they come into Chapel Hill for a game, and that game is going to be an ESPN broadcast. It's going to be a highly rated telecast. A lot of people across the country are going to be watching it. Well, Jay and Dan, they may be seeing us for the first time in three weeks or three months. And so they, they've, you know, yes, they do tons of preparation before, but they spend a lot of time uh, with us, with me, with the head coach before a game, just trying to get a, you know, what's going on with your team? Um, who's hot? Who's not? Why are, why so-and-so playing better? Why so-and-so struggling? You know, what do you need to do better as a team? Where, where do you think this team's ceiling is? Um, the, the things that, so that when they go on the broadcast and they talk about the team, um, they've got some, a little bit more background, a little bit more flavor of what's going on. So a lot of the time leading into a game, you know, we've got a game in a couple of days and I'll probably spend six, seven hours um, from the previous game just putting together an information packet uh, for the media. Now, Everybody doesn't read it. It's 40, 50 pages, depending on the game. And some schools do more, some schools do less. Um, but it has to be done after every game. And it's not that, that every media person that you send that to sits down and devours every word of it. 
but there are going to be times during the game where they may reach into that and try and find some sort of statistical note or something about the team. And it's our way of being able to kind of set the story um, so that when you do have all these different um, national radio and national television people come in, and again, they may see you once in November, and then they may not see you again until mid-February. Um, so you've got to be able to give them information in a concise way and then talk to them and, and talk to them either the day before the game or the day of the game uh, and be able to share with them some information that, you know, they're, they're, some of it's on background, some of it's very attributable, uh, but it's just sort of setting the scene. And that's one of the most important things that we do in, in, in my job. Well, and you really gave me some great insight. You know, when I worked at ESPN in Bristol and I was the ABC ESPN College Bowl Live production assistant in the 2011 college ball season, and I was in studio helping on on-air talent, you know, talk about all the highlights that were happening on college uh, football Saturday. And when I think about, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, when people, my colleagues were covering the game on the football field, whether it was a Carolina football game or any other major college program in the country, they would have been talking to people like yourself to get extra insight and extra knowledge to help them prepare for the game. So you have kind of walked me through um, how your role is really defined on game day and how you work with your team to really prep all of your staff and really get the broadcasters who are covering games day in and day out to understand any type of backstory or any type of facts and figures that can help them tell the game, which has been very helpful. That's, that's one of the things that, that I take a, a lot of pride in. Um, I take very seriously um, being able to, to help uh, not just uh, the, the live game broadcasters, whether it's uh, national or local TV but, and radio, but also the people. You know, now if you look in the, in the press section during a game, most of the writers are their their heads are down and they're on their Twitter and they're they're putting out um, information about every sometimes every play so every minute they're constantly updating their feeds so that you know they're reporting yes they're writing a story after the game but they're also in game sending out a lot of information the radio and TV broadcasters are are obviously whether it's through graphics or what the announcers say or a replay they're obviously telling that story. So one of the things that I, I find to be very important to do during a game is when something comes up, whether it, maybe a player sets a career high or he does something for the first time since two years ago or the team does something for the first time in a long time, it's to take the information that everybody has access to but try and put our, our sort of narrative on it, the context to it. Why is it important that you know, we suddenly scored 20 points off turnovers. Well, maybe we hadn't been forcing a lot of turnovers in the last few games. So the fact that now all of a sudden we forced a bunch of turnovers and scored a lot of points off turnovers, that's a different trend. That, that, that may be something that puts the game a little bit more context to what happened. So, you know, anybody can just look at a box score and say, yeah, this guy had the most points or this guy had X number of assists. But I want to know if maybe a guy had the last four games he'd really been struggling from three point. And all of a sudden today, he's four for five. So it's not just to say, hey, this guy made four threes today. It's that he made four threes, but in the previous five games, he'd only made two. He'd really been struggling. So this was a turn for him. 
Um, and may, maybe that leads to a story that the sideline reporter knows of, well, yeah, I talked to that player after the game about how to try and come out of a slump. And, they, you know, that person shot 100 extra shots after practice yesterday. So trying to put what, what's on a box score or what people see and trying to give it a little bit more background, a little bit more context so that it means something. It's not just a number. For my audience, you know, on this podcast, you know, talk to me about, you know, your past relationship with, you know, Coach Williams. Obviously, you have an ongoing relationship with him, although he's in retirement now. Matt Brown leads our football team. All the major coaches of our baseball team, our soccer teams, our lacrosse teams, you know, all the teams, right? Talk to me about their different styles of how they'd like to receive information, how you disseminate information to them. And, you know, I'm sure all their preparation styles are different maybe checking with you, making sure that they have all the up-to-date information because it probably helps them with their coaching strategies on game day. So maybe want to shed some light on some of those uh, key relationships you have at the athletic department. Yeah, that, that's a really important question because every coach, whether it's whatever the sport is, um, every coach is a little bit different in terms of what kind of information they want. Um, some coaches um, don't really need a box score after a game. Um, some coaches, Dean Smith, uh, after every game, um, Dean, Coach Smith would, he would rarely talk to the team for more than 30 seconds to a minute after a game. Some coaches talk to their players for 45 minutes. Jim Calhoun at Connecticut, who I was a student assistant at UConn when Coach Calhoun first got to UConn in the late 80s, Coach Calhoun might talk to his team for 45, 50 minutes after a game. Uh, Coach Smith would talk to him for a minute because Coach Smith wanted to see the film first. Um, this was before video. He wanted to see the film and then video um, before he criticized the player because maybe it was something that he sees on film that's different. Coach Williams would always uh, pretty much be ready to go talk to the media as soon as he got a box score. And there were certain things, and, and you identify and you learn from working with a coach what's important. You know, I learned, you know, in 18 years that Coach Williams and I worked together, and, and, and I learned pretty early on what on a stat sheet does he really like to see? He wanted to look at field goal percentage shooting, both for us and for the other team. He wanted to look at the rebounding totals. He always wanted to win the rebounding matchup. He wanted to look at offensive rebounds and to see if, if we got, because if you listen to Coach Williams, there's only two ways to get the ball. You know, you get the ball, you know, other than when the team scores, if you turn the ball over or if you get an offensive rebound. So he wanted to look at, well, how many times did we turn it over? How many times right. did we force the other team to turn it over? Um, he didn't look at every category, but those were sort of four or five different ones. So then sometimes on the way to talk to the team over 18 years, I learned, okay, coach, you know, coach, we shot, um, you know, 56% in the second half. And we only turned it over three times in, in the second half. We turned it over eight times in the first half. And I'm sure he got on him on it about halftime. But hey, right. coach, in the second half, we only turned it over three times. And then he'd go into the team and he might reference those. And particularly as the 18 years working together and, and he got to know me and got to trust me and got to understand that I knew what he was looking for. You know, he would use those stats, not just with the media, but he would use them with the team. Um, so you kind of get a, a little bit of understanding of, of what is important to that coach. Um, the assistant coaches do a lot of the scouting. I know certainly in college basketball, the assistant coaches, they do most of the scouting um, and they'll divvy up the teams. But every coach looks at something different. So they'll take the, the schedule at the beginning of the year 
and they'll divvy it up among which assistant coach is going to do the scout for which opponent. And they are, some of them are going to look for, they want these stats. Some of them don't care about that. And so you just learn which coach wants what, and then you pull that information from the other team. And, and you know, a lot of the scouting uh, you know, for opponents goes through the, the communications people. Just we help them get the stats and the box scores and the game notes of the other team. Uh, but you do learn which coach wants different things because everybody is a little bit different. I just remember from press conferences, Coach Williams would say, you know, the ball looks so much better when it's going into the basket, you know, and it's like, Absolutely. you can you think about it, maybe, you know, on any given night, you know, if the, the team shot, let's say 56% opposed to 45% or 42%, well, maybe the four or five times the ball went into the basket, it was a very, you know, difficult shot or a highly challenged shot, but it went in opposed to let's say it not going in and then, Coach Williams probably looks at it a lot differently, but he always was intuitive or he always was making that comment for a reason. Like he knows that sometimes it's a, it's a difference of a few shots going in or, you know, not turning the, not turning the ball over um, or making the right pass um, at the right time uh, for high percentage shots. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's one of the things that Coach Williams always talked about was, you know, if, if you make a bunch of threes early, you know, you kind of get that fool's gold uh, because he always wanted to work inside out. You know, the closer to the basket you get, the easier the shot, the higher percentage shot, the more you're going to score, the better chance you have to win. So there were times in early, early in his career where we'd come out and maybe we made a bunch of threes. We did that at Florida State his first year. We made a ton of threes. And, and then all of a sudden, that's all the team, they stopped forgetting to throw the ball inside to Sean May. They just right. kept jacking up three pointers, and eventually those 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 odds even out. And, right. and he would he would talk about that. But um, you know, offensive rebounding was always important to coach. Um, but here we are, you know, the first year after coach, and you know, North Carolina is still number one in the league uh, in rebound margin. Um, rebounding is still really important. Now we don't play as much with two big guys, so our offensive rebounding numbers are down. But we're also right. shooting three-pointers at a higher percentage. We're making more three-pointers. Um, and that was always sort of a, a, a myth about Coach Williams was that people thought he didn't like shooting three-pointers. But if you look at the three national championship teams that he coached at UNC, 2005, 2009, 2017, all three of those teams had very good outside shooting, had very right. good three-point shooting. Right. And he always said was he wanted that balance. You know, he wanted to be able to go inside and score easy and get a lot of offensive rebounds. But the 05 team had Jawad Williams and Raymond right. Felton and Rashad McCants and Marvin Williams, who could all make threes, and Melvin Scott. The 09 team had Ellington and Lawson and Bobby Frazier and Danny Green, who could all make shots. The 17 team had Justin Jackson and Joel Berry. Theo Pinson could make an occasional three. Um, so that balance... You know, and then Luke May certainly at the end of the season in the postseason hit some right. Plays. So, you know, that balance is what he's always was always was looking for. And um, it, it's, you know, people, people, you know, you, you, you kind of get, well, North Carolina didn't shoot threes well under Roy. What was the last couple of years? Yeah, because we didn't have as good as three-point shooting. Um, you right. 2017-18 and 2018-19, those two teams, those were two of the most prolific three-point shooting teams in Carolina basketball history. Coach Williams coached them, but they had Luke May and Kenny Williams and Cameron Johnson and Joel Berry and Kobe White, <laughs> and they had the personnel to make a lot of three-pointers. So 
Um, this year's personnel is a little bit different. We do have a little bit more perimeter-based in terms of shooting, um, but then leading scorer, leading rebounder, leading field goal percentage is Armando Baycott, a 6'10 power forward center. So right. um, in, inside ability still helps too. Well, I just think about all the teams that you highlighted, and I think Coach Williams is the most from 2003 when he got to Carolina, right after he left Kansas, to literally the last season, he's probably the most accomplished college basketball coach. You know, even more so than even Coach K's tenure, not to just make the comparison just between both of them. I know it's Tobacco Road and everybody talks about the Duke and Carolina rivalry. When you think about three national championship games that he won, the one that was so close in 2016, when you think about that 2018 that had a great, you know, final four run. When you think about the 2012 team, you know, if Kendall Marshall doesn't get injured and if John Henson doesn't have some injury as well, does that team get to the national championship game? I mean, Coach Williams, he just, every year we always competed and every year, you know, you knew that if we had balanced scoring inside the, the post, and outside with three-point shots and, you know, really doing a great job passing, distributing the ball, selfless play, and playing great defense, too. I think back to those years at Carolina when I was there when you had guys like Ty Lawson, I mean, probably the fastest person to date that Roy Williams had in terms of getting the ball from one end to another. And, you know, you had guys like Sean May and you had guys like Tyler Hansborough. And even in the later teams, you know, you mentioned some of the, the people that we had um, you know, James Michael McAdoo or, you know, you, even the outside shooting of like Harrison Barnes or Marcus Page or whomever. I mean, mentioned Kobe White. I mean, we, we ha we've had some really great talent come through. And when you think about the current coach that we have, Hubert Davis, who, you know, spent, you know, almost a decade as Coach Williams' assistant. And you talk about the assistants at Carolina, you know, some of them, you know, their roles would be scouting. I mean, how much have you seen the maturation and growth of Coach um, Davis? And how much did Roy Williams play a part in that for him to be successful and prepared for what he's doing in his first season in Carolina? Well, a, a huge part of that. I mean, Hubert spent nine years with Coach Williams um, and, and learned how to be an assistant coach and then eventually learned how to be a head coach. And he's going to do a lot of the things that Carolina basketball did under Coach Williams, but he's putting his own stamp on it. Um, he, he, you know, he wants to spread the court a little bit more. He wants to make sure that the big guys, that everybody on the floor can handle the ball and can shoot the ball. Um, and and that would, that's a little bit different uh, than the way Coach Williams did it. And Coach Williams would have loved to have five guys that can handle the ball and shoot the ball, but he also liked to have guys that, that could take the space inside and score inside um, and, and, and hit the offensive glass. So there's a little bit different, um, but a lot of if you watch, if you watch a Carolina basketball game this year, the first 15 games you play, we've played, it still looks like and is Carolina basketball. It has wrinkles that that Coach Davis has put in. It's got some things that maybe we did under Coach Williams we do less of, um, and it's got some things that we're doing more of with Coach Davis. Um, like I said, yes, our our four guy. Um, whether it's Dawson Garcia or Brady Manick, those guys have the ability to step out and shoot the ball. But again, I go back to those three national championship teams when we had we also had four guys that could shoot the ball. Jawad Williams was the four-man in 2005, and he would fit in just just as well 
under Coach Davis in 2022 with his ability to stretch the floor and be out on the perimeter and shoot threes and handle the ball and get out in transition and score in transition. So, um, I mean, a, a lot of what you hear Coach Davis talk to the team about in practice and, and on the games is very similar to what Coach Davis, I mean, Coach what, what Coach Williams emphasized um, for 18 years. And I think that because Coach Davis played under Coach Smith, how much does Coach uh, Davis talk about his time playing for Coach Smith? And are there things that he likes to implement from his days as a player now that he's a coach? Absolutely. Coach, coach one of the reasons that Coach Davis put together the coaching staff that he has is that he wanted to touch on all the generations, as many generations as possible. So everybody on his staff either played for or coached under, or in many cases both, all the way from Coach Smith to Coach Guthridge to Coach Doherty to Coach Williams. Um, everybody on his staff played here, worked here, um, and because he, he wanted to be able to take the best of all of them and incorporate that and in, in, in sort of synthesize that into his philosophy. Um, but yeah, he'll talk about um, what he learned from Coach Smith as a player. Now the game has changed an awful lot. You know, the number of three-point shots obviously is dramatically different uh, than when Coach Davis played uh, and has increased over the years. Um, but the philosophy of, of, you know, play hard, play smart, play together, you know, the Carolina mantra, I mean, that, that's, still, that's still the case now. It resonates now as much as it did, you know, when Coach Smith first talked about that. Absolutely. And I have Roy Williams' book, A Hard Work, on my bookshelf that I've, that I've read. And uh, I have a picture of Michael Jordan and me when I met him about 16 years ago at a, at a golf tournament in North Carolina. And, you know, the players that I've met at Carolina – you know, even during my time at Carolina and before and since, I mean, they all represent a part of a legacy that will forever be ongoing and strengthening year after year because they represented during their time, you know, a strong and, you know, dominating place in college basketball history. I mean, playing for those legendary teams for Coach Smith and Coach Williams and Coach Guthridge and Coach Doherty and then now with, uh, you know, Coach Williams and now with, with, you know, Coach Davis, I mean, you see that trajectory of growth and, you know, we've never really, um, other than a year or two there, here or there, we've always maintained dominance and we've always maintained a level of excellence. So talk about the Carolina tradition and the rich history that we have from your perspective and maybe from a communications perspective and how your role fits in all in this because communication is everything and that's what it takes to relationship build and be successful always having communication always having open conversations and transparency just talk about like what does it mean to you to see so much excellence and dominance in the sport of basketball from so many years and decades i think one of the things that that we try and communicate to people is yeah they're going to be they're going to be years uh, where you struggle, you know, either you have injuries, uh, you lose a lot of guys to the NBA. Now with the transfer portal, uh, roster maintenance is, is harder than it ever before. Um, but one of the unique things about Carolina basketball is that consistency over time and the ability to bounce back from a down year and, and to do it rather quickly. Um, you know, we, we've been in, uh, the only school in the country that's been in the Final Four every decade since the 40s. 
um, you know, 20 Final Fours, um, and, and to have have done so well in Atlantic Coast Conference play, which has been one of, if not the best conferences in basketball for 50 years. So that consistency level, you know, in 2002, uh, we went through a tough year. We went eight and 20, and three years later, we were cutting down the nets in St. Louis. Um, it, it's it. We have been able to bounce back um, because of number one, we have a great school, and we have a world class university. So we have the ability. That's not going anywhere. So that's you know that stands the test of time. So you know. 10 years from now, you're still going to get, um, you're going to be able to recruit student athletes who want to come get a world-class education. Now, the way basketball has gone, maybe that's one year or two years, but we also have those guys that want to come back and get their degrees, which, which they do. Um, so we have that, we have that sort of foundation in the great academic piece. And then you have that tradition, that history of, you know, we can say like, this isn't a, this isn't a, you know, once in a lifetime thing. This is not a flash in the pan. This is tried and true consistency over decades upon decades of from one coach to another, from one generation of players to another, to different styles of play. And we've been fortunate that you know, young people who grow up watching college basketball, um, they get a chance to see us play a lot. You know, we've been successful and hopefully we want to build on that success in the current and keep taking it forward. But so far, we have been able to, to whether, you know, if you have a down year, and sometimes our down years are what other schools might say, wow, that, that was a pretty strong year. You know, we have high standards here. We have high goals here. We wanna play on that last Monday night in April every year. And that doesn't always happen. It didn't always happen under Coach Smith. Coach Smith won two national championships in 36 seasons. So other people also find a way to do it. But in those other years where Coach Smith didn't win a national championship, or 15 of the 18, I mean, Roy won three in 18 years. So somebody else won him in the 15. But even in most of those 15, we were very competitive. Uh, we were either deep into the NCAA tournament. Uh, or making it to the Final Four. And I think that's that level of consistency that, and, and, and again, it starts with having a great school. It starts with having an athletic department that isn't just focused on one sport. Uh, we have a very broad-based athletic program. Uh, we finished fourth last year in the Director's Cup, which measures all sport NCAA success. Um, we've had 22 top 10 finishes in the 27 years of that Director's Cup, and that's a national uh, national competition. So 22 of the last 27 years, our program's been the last in the top 10 in the country. Not just in men's basketball, but for a department. And people take a lot of pride in that. Um, Roy Williams, that was one of the great things that people really love about Roy, is that it, he wasn't just the basketball coach and only cared about the basketball program. Um, he loved going to the College World Series. Uh, he loved going to women's basketball games. He'd come out to the golf course if the golf teams were hosting a tournament. Uh, he never missed a home football game un unless absolutely, you know, we were on the road in Hawaii or something. Uh, it was the only time he'd miss a home football game because he loved being part of the campus. He loved the pageantry and the, and the, the tailgating aspect of college football. Uh, and, and that's something that Coach Davis has carried on as well. I mean, the basketball program here is not just in isolation uh, away from the rest of the athletic department. Um, it is part of our overall athletic department. 
Uh, obviously, it's a high-profile part, um, but you know the, the players on the team care about the, the teams, the rest of the teams, and I think that generates a lot of support from the rest of the program, the rest of campus. There is obviously tremendous support for the men's basketball program here, but in large part, it's because that that program tries to be part of and integrate the, with the rest of campus as well. Talk about the other programs, and I know how much just remember from my days at Carolina, seeing Coach Williams at a baseball game and him supporting all the other, you know, programs on campus through the athletic department. Talk to me about the relationships you have with the other coaches and the other sports and, you know, highlighting that for our audience who, you know, you always think about Carolina basketball, Carolina football, Carolina baseball, Carolina soccer, but there are just other sports that are phenomenal university offers and it'd be helpful from a communications perspective as well with your team and your staff, how you've interacted with those coaches. Well, when coach Davis was hired, one of the first um, stops that he made on campus, the, the, I think it was either the day he got hired or maybe the day after was to go to football practice and coach Brown, Mac Brown wanted him to come say hello and talk to the team. So he did that. Um, and, and that's, you know, our coaches help each other recruit. Um, Coach Williams um, uh, was famous for uh, the, sometimes during the Duke game when we're hosting Duke at the Smith Center, uh, which is obviously a high-profile game, and there's a lot of energy and a lot of tension around that game. You know, and people would be amazed that 30 minutes before Carolina's playing Duke in basketball, there's Roy Williams sitting on the bench talking to a football prospect. Um, or uh, Joe Segul, our volleyball coach, would bring uh, four or five volleyball recruits over to our shoot-around the day of the Duke game. And, and people would be at the shoot-around, which is, you know, practice. We have a, a short practice about five hours before tip-off of the, of the regular game. Um, uh, Joe would bring um, some recruits by. And people are like, wow, that's am you know, amazing that Coach Williams would, would be okay with, you know, another sport. And like, that's what we're here for. We're here to help. And Coach Williams and Coach Davis and Coach Brown, they understand that the higher profile programs, they have the opportunity to help our other sports when it comes to access, when it comes to visibility, when it comes to, from a recruiting standpoint, to be able to show that this isn't just you're coming here to be part of one sport. You're coming here to be part of a program. You're coming here to be part of a student body. You're coming here to be part of a great university. So all of those things work together. And all those things work together and they're the epitome of relationship building because you talk about coaches helping coaches. You talk about coaches talking to other prospective students and athletes who are considering attending Carolina and showing the love and support for their fellow coaches and programs within the university. I mean, it just bolsters, you know, our reputation of being very, not only dominant, but also very selfless and also wanting everyone to succeed at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I think that, you know, Coach Smith has been an excellent ambassador. I think that, you know, Coach Smith, I wish I had the privilege of meeting him. He was before my time when I went to UNC. But, you know, just the amount of respect and class that he had and the way he carried himself and the way that he always did the right things and championed education and championed, you know, civil rights and, you know, uh, Charlie Scott, his daughter and I were in the same journalism program at UNC. And, 
you know, I didn't have a chance to meet Charlie Scott, but obviously I know uh, his daughter, Simone Scott. And, you know, when you think about him being the first, you know, African-American player to get a scholarship at UNC under Coach Smith and, you know, really Coach Smith, he, he broke down barriers. You know, that is a legacy that is so prideful for us as, you know, people who went to the university knowing that you had people like Coach Smith who was ahead of his time and one of his key mentors was Coach um, Williams and how Coach Williams then carried a legacy, you know, to Coach um, Davis. So, and then obviously Matt Doherty, Coach Doherty and Coach Guthridge definitely played integral roles in the success of Carolina as well. But it's just wonderful to think that even Coach Smith's mentor was Fog Allen and Fog Allen's coach, uh, coaching mentor was the founder of basketball, Dr. James Naismith. So do you ever think about that? That we're always absolutely. the... Yeah, absolutely. The, the direct descendants and the ancestral tree of, of basketball through Naismith and Allen to Smith, to all the different coaches that have coached here under Coach Smith, Larry Brown, uh, Coach Williams, uh, a, a lot of coaches, you know, uh, George Carl that have gone on, players that have gone on to coach in the NBA, scout in the NBA, Bob McAdoo, uh, different players that, that are, you know, at other universities. And, and that's, that's the, you know, Coach Smith, everybody knows Coach Williams when he was a student. He learned the game by going to practice and watching Coach Smith's practices when he was just a freshman and a sophomore and go sit in, sit in the in Carmichael Auditorium at the time and take notes. Well, people don't also don't know, Anson Dorrance did that, our women's soccer coach, our 22-time national champion women's soccer coach. When he was a student here, when he was a young coach here, that he would adopt, uh, he would watch Carolina basketball practices and talk to Coach Smith and learn from Coach Smith and he adopted a lot of the training uh, programs, the, the charting of every drill. He took that from Coach Smith. And now our coaches, you know, one of the things that Coach Williams is doing in his retirement is sort of coaching other coaches. And he loves coaches. Coach Williams is a coach's coach. He loves the, the whole aspect of, of coaching and team building and relationship building and teaching. He always viewed him, himself as a teacher, not just as a coach of a sport. And he wanted to build a program, not just a team. And the ability now to talk to our younger coaches, our head coaches, some of them not younger, some of them who've been here 25, 30 years that still want to tap into to his, um, uh, his interest and his knowledge of, of coaching people and coaching coaches. And that's what, one of the things that he's really looking forward to. Um, it's one of the things he's done just this week, going out to Kansas and going out to Michigan State to see Bill Self and see Tom Izzo and, and watch their programs up close. And, um, you know, he, he didn't get a chance to do that, obviously, in 33 years as a head coach. But he's going to get a chance to do that now as a retired coach. Um, and, and that's, you know, he, as much as he misses the games, he misses practice more. Because that was that was you know that was the time this year where it really hit him, um, you know he he struggled. Coach Williams did. He struggled the night before the first practice, the night the day of the first practice. It was very emotional, 
Um, you know, people say, oh, you missed that, you know, that game to opening day. That was really tough. He goes, not as tough as opening day of practice was because that's when I get to really build a team. Um, at his press conference um, back in April when he announced his retirement, um, it was one of the most raw, personal, uh, reflective, personally reflective uh, news conferences that a lot of people said they'd ever heard. I was getting texts. I was moderating the press conference, and I was getting text messages of people going, wow, this is hard to watch because he was so... Uh, introspective and so hard on himself about why he felt this was the right time to stop because he just felt like he wasn't getting the job done and you know I think a lot of other people dispute that 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 he wasn't getting it done but he felt that and for that reason he felt it was the right time but the very last question of the press conference uh, was one of the local reporters said uh, who'd, who'd covered him the entire 18 years and covered all the way back to Coach Smith, Barry Jacobs. Um, Barry asked, he said, Coach, a few minutes ago you said you were kind of scared about what's next, about the future. W what do you mean by that? And Coach, uh, Coach Williams said it was hard to listen to. He said, I'm scared because I've always been putting teams together for the last, since I was in high school. I mean, 50 years. I was the guy that put the pickup teams together in high school. I was the guy that, you know, in college when we played pickup at Woolen Gym, that I picked the sides. He goes, I made teams for, you know, 33 years as a head coach. When we go golfing with my buddies, I'm the one that divvies up the teams. When we go, you know, play in a scramble, he goes, and now I don't have a team to put together. And, and that made, made him, you know, scared about what's next. So I, I think the opportunity to mentor other coaches and to talk to them, whether it's our women's lacrosse coach, our men's golf coach, Andrew, Andrew DiBetetto, and he have a great relationship. Uh, Jenny Levy, our lacrosse coach, who's won two national championships. She has an amazing relationship with Coach Williams because she was a coach who, like Coach Williams, Coach Williams was in the 91, 93 Final Four, uh, the 2002 and three Final Four, and Kansas didn't win. And when he got here, people said, oh, well, he can't win the big one. Coach Smith took seven Final Fours before he could. So Jenny Levy, our women's lacrosse coach, she'd been to a few Final Fours in, in the early 2010s and didn't come home with a national championship. And she met, with, she met with Coach and said, you know, how do I handle it? What do I do? What? And, and he kind of counseled her through it. And she's won two championships. You know, not just because of what Roy Williams said, but I know that means a lot to her in, in that what he did say and the time that he took. And uh, I know that's one of the things he's really relishing uh, throughout this, this early part of his retirement. Well, I think it's great because, you know, he's mentoring and teaching in so many different aspects. I mean, whether it's current coaches at Carolina, where they had to get over the proverbial you know, hump to win a national championship. And, you know, yes, Coach Smith had his challenges and so did Coach Williams, but you always knew that he was competing every day, every week, every month, every year, putting the best teams together possible. And he has, you know, the best of things to be said about him from Coach Self, who took over the program from Coach Williams when he went back to Carolina. And the fact that you talk about, you know, Coach Williams and Coach Self, you know, meeting together during Coach Williams' retirement, you know, visiting Lawrence, Kansas, and the fact that he has great relationships there and he has so much great respect from Coach Self and 
it's mutual between both coaches. And I mean, how many coaches really go back to their, you know, previous school that they coached at, you know, once their time has concluded. I mean, the fact that coach Williams is just as much, you know, university of North Carolina, as much as he is the university of, of Kansas. And he was able to really put Kansas in a position to win a couple national championships, but that's not what people should really focus on. They should focus on all of those years of pure dominance in Allen Fieldhouse. And, you know, I think that it's great that he can visit coach, Self and he can visit Coach Izzo, and he has great respect amongst those coaches because they've competed at you know against Coach Williams and Carolina at the highest of levels. And the I think the relationship building aspect, you know, that blends in with the mutual respect everybody has for each other, and the teaching that each coach can still learn from each other, and each program can still learn from, no matter what stage of their journey. And I think that is truly remarkable. I was very pleased to see the, the, the reaction that the Kansas crowd, um, the, the folks at KU did a great job with the video uh, that they played for Coach Williams. Um, the reaction of the crowd was fantastic. And I think that, that um, I couldn't be happier for Coach Williams and Wanda uh, who were there because, you know, he said, you know, he always said he loved two universities. And, you know, he said, is it a sin to, to, to love two universities? Um, you can only coach at one at a time. And, you know, it, it, it hurt the people at North Carolina in 2000 when he decided to stay at Kansas. And it hurt the people at Kansas in 2003 when he decided to come back to North Carolina because he could only be in one place and coach one team. And, but he's always, he's always had great respect, uh, great admiration uh, for Kansas. Uh, when he was at North, when he was there, he felt the same way about the people in North Carolina. Um, but I was just really happy for him and for his family uh, that the Kansas crowd gave him the the, uh, the ovation and the response that they did because he gave him 15 fantastic years. Uh, he won over 400 games and went to four Final Fours, and uh, they were the best team in the Big Eight, the Big 12 for that time. And uh, he is he's so much to be, uh, you know, he appreciates the time that he had there. Um, and, and he loved the time that he has here now. I think so. I, I definitely agree with you because, you know, the only coach to lead two separate programs to at least four Final Fours and at least win 400 games at both universities. And I think that, you know, sometimes, you know, fans can judge coaches by wins and losses. But for someone like Coach Smith, or Coach Williams, or now with Coach Davis, I mean, you know that they're going to be winning, or, you know, Coach Davis is going to win a lot of games, and, you know, Coach Smith and Coach Williams won a lot of games, and the three years that Coach Guthridge was there, he took the program to two Final Fours, and Matt Doherty's first year, um, you know, he won, you know, AP College Coach of the Year, and, you know, again, it's like, Anytime a coach gets to Carolina, even if their time at Carolina is shortened, whether it's from injuries or maybe a down season or however the things evolved where then Coach Williams, you know, you know, took over the program after he left Kansas. But every coach, you know, all the way down, they have mastered their sport, not just by wins and, you know, wins, more wins than losses, let's say. But it's really what it boils down to is the impact that they've made on their players, you know, the impact that they made on the university, the reputations that preceded them. And I think that when you think about 
you know, the University of Kansas, although I've never had the opportunity to visit Lawrence, Kansas yet and, and see the university, you know, you have an affinity toward the University of Kansas. You know, that's where, you know, Dean Smith played and where he won a national championship. You think about, you know, Larry Brown coached there at one time, you know, Roy, that's where Roy Williams coached at. And it's like, there is these interesting ties between both University of Kansas and the University of North Carolina. So for a Tar Heel like me or Tar Heel like you, you know, you, you appreciate what the University of Kansas did for Coach Smith and Coach Williams and even Coach Brown because, uh, Larry Brown, because, you know, it definitely, you know, was highlights of their, you know, Hall of Fame careers. You know, I think Coach Williams, for all of the achievements at both schools, it's still the relationships that he has with his players that he cherishes the most. It's the, the I think it was 18 players maybe that he got together with when he went back to Kansas a couple days ago um, when he was inducted into the um, Naismith Hall of Fame in 2007. Uh, I think it was 23 players from Kansas and North Carolina went to the ceremony. Um, that That's what he, that's what he'll remember the most. That's what he'll cherish the most is, you know, when, when, a player calls, you know, whether it's Kirk Heinrichs or Rafe LaFrentz or Nick Collison or Paul Pierce or someone like that, you know, calls, you know, while he was the head coach at North Carolina, you know, he he got on the phone and he enjoyed that conversation as much as he did with one of his current players. And he'll enjoy that relationship with Tyler Hansbro and Wes Miller and Marcus Ginyard and Marcus Page and Justin Jackson, etc. through, you know, 10, 15 years from now. That's what he's going to enjoy is those Carolina players and the memories and and you know they Tyler Hansbrough said when he when he finished his career he said the best thing I can say about coaches he always told us what we needed to hear not what we wanted to hear and a lot of times when you you know you're playing for a coach who's demanding and has high standards and wants you to to get the most out of you you know it's you know it's it's a tough relationship and but those are the ones that that come back and and surprise him later and say, you know, coach, when, when it was here, you know, maybe I didn't understand, you know, why you ran it, made us run another 33 after practice or, you know, why you took me out after that turnover or why I didn't get to play as much as I thought I should have. But what you taught me is what I've carried on for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of my life. And that's what, and those are the conversations that mean the most to him. You know, I want to talk about as well, and I'm, I appreciate you providing the anecdote with, you know, Tyler Hansborough, because I know that that was, you know, one of coaches like best relationships, all of the players that he had were special relationships and equally as important. But I think it was like one of his best relationships between a player and a coach because of how, you know, Tyler Hansborough was so successful in those four years playing at Carolina, winning a national championship. But I think that coach Williams probably appreciated that, for someone like Tyler Hansborough and other players also are worth mentioning, but you know, every day you're going to get the same effort, the same or comparable performance. And that, you know, you really saw, you know, this, the syncing up between coach and player, you know, and, and the ability to, you know, read each other's like minds, if you will, you know, because it, that's what it felt like anyways, when, you know, when we had those dominant runs, you know, leading up to that 09 championship, I mean, you know, Coach Williams and that team with Tyler Hansborough, and you mentioned, you know, Wayne Ellington and 
Ty Lawson, Marcus Ginyard, Bobby Fraser, Deion Thompson, you know, all those guys. But, you know, Tyler Hansborough was just one of those special players who I think, again, was able to fulfill, I think, the role in which that Coach Williams always wanted him to fill and always wanted him to reach his full potential, which I think that with the accolades, you know, and it's not just about the accolades, but I think they speak for themselves on behalf of, you know, a Tyler Hansborough to be able to be that anchor down low teams that like where Williams loves like the balance scoring and the post-up games. And I think that that was like a traditional, you know, team that I think that really like stood apart, I think, in Coach Williams' tenure at Carolina, having a team like that and to be able to dominate it. That maybe that just stood out to me because that was when I went to Carolina and I just remember watching those games and just the elite style of play that someone like a Tyler Hansborough. That team, by any measure, should rank among the best, maybe not the best, but certainly among the best college basketball teams in the last 25, 30 years. It was so good. It was so dominant in the NCAA tournament. Um, but that relationship with Tyler, I think what's interesting is when we won that championship, the the emotion that Coach Williams felt the most was relief because he wanted so badly for Tyler and the other seniors in that class, but particularly Tyler because uh, to win a national championship because Tyler could have gone to the NBA after his senior year of high school. He was in the last class of guys that could go right out of high school, and he didn't. He was a first-team All-America in all four seasons. So to think that a first-team All-America wouldn't go to the NBA now is almost unheard of. Right. He could have gone after his freshman, sophomore, and junior seasons to go to the NBA. And he didn't because he wanted to win a college national championship. And then at the beginning of his senior season, you'll remember this, but a lot of people don't. Uh, at the beginning of his senior season, Tyler had to sit out the first few games because he had a stress reaction in his shin. I remember that. It was basically a precursor to a broken bone in his shin had he continued to play. So I remember on Halloween night, Coach Williams calling me and saying, you know, I hope you're sitting down, but Tyler has a stress reaction and, and he's not going to be able to play the first few games. And the relief, the twofold relief in Detroit when we won the national championship was one, that he had been able to help Tyler win a national championship coming back year after year after year with that being the primary goal. And two to get through that season without Tyler breaking his leg. That was a very real concern of Coach Williams. Every time that we practiced, every time that we played, in the back of his mind, he felt, what if, what if this is the day that his shin bone cracks and he misses the rest of the season and can't play right. and I heard his future, you know, we heard his future, whatever. And it never happened. It didn't, thank God. Um, but... That was the pressure that Coach Williams felt. You know, Coach Smith said he always felt the most pressure that he ever had coaching was coaching the 76 Olympic team because it was following the 72 in Munich where the, you know, the Soviet Union game, the gold medal game, we got robbed. 
and you know that that the responsibility that USA basketball put on coach Smith to, to reclaim the gold medal. He always said that was by far the most pressure coach Williams will tell you by far the most pressure was coaching that 09 team with Tyler and the stress reaction and making sure that they won a championship and that he stayed healthy throughout the whole year. And when it came to pressure, how did coach manage the expectations or manage that pressure level when it came to coaching against Coach Krzyzewski and, and Duke University. How much did the Carolina-Duke rivalry, whether if you recall, um, you know, how Coach Smith approached it or Coach Guthridge or Coach Doherty, Coach Williams now, now Coach Davis, but the, the monumental weight, if you will, because there's no greater rivalry in college sports as Dickie V would say, than Duke in North Carolina or like Jay Billis or like any of those former players or coaches or broadcasters who have covered, you know, the sport, you know, and, and coach Williams, people tend to forget the history that coach Williams and coach K had before Duke and Carolina, because coach Williams lost a national championship game to coach Krzyzewski when he was at the university of Kansas, but nobody, nobody probably on a daily basis or frequency thinks about that because that was when coach Williams had his time at University of Kansas. But I don't know if he ever shared that with you about, you know, that his rivalry, if you will, if he ever thinks of it as a rivalry with coach K or if it's more of the media hyping it up, but really, I mean, media side, it is the greatest rivalry in college sports and one of the greatest rivalries in American sports history. But how did coach Williams approach his games against Duke and even utilizing the stats and research and the communications um, abilities that you and your team had to prepare for games like that. I don't think coach Williams felt a whole lot more pressure against Duke, except when those every other year instances where it was the final home game for the seniors, he will be the first to tell you that he felt an enormous amount of pressure in those Duke games because up until just a few years ago, he never lost the senior game, either at Kansas or at North Carolina. And to send the seniors out in their final home game, um, and again, every other year it's against Duke, you would definitely see an increase in the <laughs> energy, tension, whatever it may be, in that game. But I don't, I don't remember seeing extra tension when we played at Duke or when we played them I mean, in the ACC tournament or something like that in terms of the coach. Um, I think the coaches enjoy those moments because they're big games against a great rival, um, both the program and the coach. And, and I, I, I think the people, everybody around the program feels that extra level of tension. Again, when it was senior night though, there was a palpable <laughs> increase in, in Coach Williams' attention because of that very fact of wanting to send the kids out with a win. Um, but I think that, I think great coaches, I think they, they relish that moment. They enjoy that moment. They live for that moment in coaching when they're coaching a big game against a big rival on a big stage with everybody watching and it meaning something. 
Um, you know, Coach Williams played Duke, I think it was nine times in the last game of the regular season with first place on the line, either for us to win it outright or to gain a share. And he won every one of them. And so I don't think the pressure of playing Duke um, was any different for him than the pressure of other big games. I wanted to switch gears because I wanted to talk about you, you know, Steve Kirshner, what is relationship building have meant to you in your personal life, maybe with your family or just being at the university of North Carolina, you know, you speak, you know, so highly of all the people you work with, and I'm sure people can speak very highly of working with you because you come across as somebody who really, you know, loves our university, someone who has dedicated so much time to our university, giving back to our university, being in such a critical role to help our programs and our student athletes and our coaches do so much better in their crafts. You know, talk to me about, you know, just your upbringing and you, you mentioned, you know, being an assistant for Coach Calhoun, but just give me some anecdotes of you know, how you first started to where you are today and how much relationship building has meant to you. Well, I've, I've only worked in sports. I'm, I'm 55 and a half years old and I, I'm spoiled rotten to, to the point to be able to say I've never held a job a day in my life that wasn't in sports. And that started when I was 10 years old as a bat boy for the Bristol Red Sox, the uh, Boston Red Sox double A franchise in Connecticut. And I worked 12 years of minor league baseball. Um, as a bat boy and a clubhouse manager, equipment manager, traveling secretary, groundskeeper, you name it. And so I got to be around sports at a very young age, and I got to see how teams were built and good teams, bad teams, championship teams. And I went to the University of Connecticut, and I worked in the sports information office for four years, and I, I basically kind of majored in sports information. I probably spent, well, I not probably, I know I spent more time per week in the sports information office than I did probably my studies. Um, and I just learned from Tim Tolkien and Chuck Steedman, people like that, Barb Koval, uh, who's an executive now at, at Cosida. Um, I learned from them of how to find that balance between, you know, if you work in our business, whether it's sports information or communications, public relations, whatever you call it, you know, you're in that fine line between you're not on the team and you're not the media you're in between them and and more and more as i said earlier we are we are curating and and, and producing our own content more than so maybe 25 years ago or 10 20 years ago where we were helping the media do tell our story um, but we're always sort of in in a little bit of no man's land in our in our job because the teams think that we're the media and the media know that we're the teams and so we, we, we have to kind of bridge that, that, those two groups um, to be able to tell our story and at the same time help, have a, help other people tell our story. So I, I worked at UConn uh, for four years and um, I wanted to go into minor league baseball because I, I, I'd worked it 12 years as a kid and I thought I was going to be a general manager of a minor league baseball team popping popcorn in the, no in the morning and taking tickets at night and counting the receipts after the game and all that. And um, an opportunity came here at the University of North Carolina to do an internship. 
And I came here right out of school. I did the internship. I worked for Rick Brewer and Dave Losey, and they taught me the business. And I've been doing this sports information thing now for 37, 38 years now. And I love doing what I do because I get to be around college campus, which keeps you young. Every year there's a new group of students, new coaches, new teams. It's a new season. It's very refreshing. Um, and I get to, I get to, I always tell people, they say, why do you like your job? And I go, do you see where I sit? <laughs> you know, and I have a great seat to history. And, you know, I get to be, you know, when I was the clubhouse manager for the Red Sox, I, I always enjoyed the first pitch of the game because the uniforms were fresh and clean. The spikes were shined. The field was perfect. Uh, everything was prepped in the dugout, the water coolers were out, the towels were out, all the things that, that I could contribute as a terrible baseball player, um, all the things that I could contribute behind the scenes to getting ready for that game. And then when the game started, it was those talented players, it was their thing. Same thing for, for a basketball game here. I always enjoy that moment right before tip-off. When I look around and I see the media are in their seats, you know, I help credential them, I put them in their seats, the photographers are all in place, I've assigned their photographer spaces, the TV people are ready to go, I've helped prep them for the game, um, the team's ready, we help the coaches, you know, whatever information they needed on the other team, um, you know, we were able to put out information about our players that helped tell their story and you know, whether it's, you know, Armando Baycott is the only player in the top 10, the, the country in certain categories. And so maybe they'll, maybe they'll use that nugget. Maybe they'll say, Hey, Armando Baycott, boom, he did this. And you go, yeah, I looked that up. I helped tell that story, all of those things. And then when the game goes, you just sit back and watch. And again, you know, now it's, Hey, as the game's going on, hey, this happened. You know, this, this is something that you should keep. You know, make make this part of your story. You know, this can tell. This can help shape the narrative of that game. So, you know, I couldn't hit a curveball and I couldn't dunk, but uh, you know, this was my way of being able to stay in sports. And like I said, for 45 years, I've never held a job that wasn't in sports. So I'm incredibly lucky. And you know, what goals would you like to achieve? You know, if you can think three, five, maybe 10 years down the line, what, what, what goals would you like to fulfill as a part of the university career wise, or I just want to still be here. I, I, you know, I really do. I, you know, I always say, you know, we, we're not Supreme court justices. We don't have lifetime <laughs> appointments, you know, right. we, serve at the, we serve at the pleasure of the director of athletics and, and uh, certainly coaches. We don't work for coaches. We certainly with, work with coaches, but you know I've, I've always told, I told Coach Williams the first day that he came here, um, when Coach Williams took the job as the head coach, the very first day, uh, I, knew, I knew Roy, even though he'd been an assistant here for 10 years, and certainly he'd stayed sort of close to the program for 15 years at Kansas, I knew Coach Williams as the parent of a walk-on. His son, Scott, was a walk-on in the team for two years, and, and I knew Coach Williams when he would come back and certain games to watch his son play or watch Carolina play and I'd meet him and but I didn't really know coach Williams and I told him the very first day on the job I said coach there's two things that are, you really have to know and I, now I'd been here for I don't know I'd, I'd been here 
let's see, that was 2003. So I'd been here about 15 years already, and I'd been working with the basketball team for quite a while already. Um, but I told him, I said two things. I said, number one, I said, the most valuable resource that I have is your time. I will never abuse your time. If I come to you with an interview request, it's because I've already thought we should do it, and I think it's best for you, your program, or the university. Um, you won't see half the stuff that comes across my plate that are requests for you. Um, I said the second thing is that if you don't trust me, then go to Dick Bedore, our athletic director at the time, and tell him to get somebody else to work with men's basketball. You have to be able to trust me. And when I say trust, I have to be able to tell you bad news. I have to be able to tell you things you may not want to hear, kind of like what Hansbro said. Um, I've, you've got to be able to trust me that I'm going to be your eyes and ears for what's best for you, your program, and the university. And I will never abuse your time. And from that day on, that's kind of the, those are the sort of commandments we live by. Um, and it, it worked fine. That's the same, you know, I worked with Anson Dorrance, our women's soccer coach. I, I stepped in for about six weeks this, uh, in September and October, we were short staffed for a couple months. And, and I hadn't worked with Anson in 25 years. I was the women's soccer SD from 1988 to 1995. And Anson was the coach obviously then. And, uh, he is now, and I, you know it was fun, and I, it was a blast. And he said, you know, I remember now why I enjoyed working with you so much because you care, you care about the student athletes, you care about my program, and you're going to tell me things that I need to know. You're going to tell me sometimes when I should say a certain thing or not say a certain thing, but you're going to put what's best for the program first, and you're going to tell me what I have to hear, and, and that's kind of. So I hope five years from now, ten years, I hope they still have me. I'd I'd love to, I'd love to work another fifteen years till I'm seventy, and then go be a starter out at the uh, Finley Golf Course, as long as they'll have me out there. So, absolutely. What what was real quick? What was Coach Williams' response when you responses when you said those things? He said everything that I've heard from uh, Coach Guthridge and Coach Doherty and Coach Smith is that I absolutely can trust you because they trusted you and that they know, I know that you're going to give me good advice. And, and he let me in, you know, he, 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 he trusted me from the beginning. Uh, more so though, as, as each year goes by. And I think he understood that, that I was going to, I was going to tell him, you know, there were times when, when, you know, I just said, coach, you know, we, we need to go in this direction and he didn't want to, but, I think in all the years that, that I ever, uh, I mean, there's only a handful of times uh, that, that, you know, we disagreed on something or, or he didn't want to do a certain interview that I asked him to do. Um, but, you know, he, it was always, it's always been a very good role. And, and continuing on now, I mean, I'm very, I'm very pleased, you know, very proud of the fact that, you know, not only am I still working with Coach Davis and the current men's basketball team, but I'm working with Coach Williams and, and helping him coordinate his schedule, which, you know, he's trying to cut way, way back. I keep coming to him with requests and he wants right. to, he keeps cutting way, way back. <laughs> and I go, that's the prerogative of a retired coach. So, uh, but. Well, uh, hopefully, really, really uh, hopefully. Yeah, oh. I'm doing my best on that one. <laughs> no, you were saying that you're really blessed and um, absolutely. And I, and I hope that uh, when you do speak with him, that uh, he is 
able to uh, lend you know 20 25 minutes of his time for me to speak with him and you know I'd love to you know talk to coach brown as well if that's possible you know he actually worked at ESPN right after I worked there and he was there before he went back into coaching and he actually worked with some of the people I worked with and I know that I had a brief exchange with him on social media years ago before I think he wasn't monitoring his account as much so if you ever have a chance to talk to coach brown I'd, I'd love to interview him too because with these interviews Steve it's great because you know when you look at the roster of people I have it's refreshing to hear multiple guests talk about their relationships with other guests I've had on because they've crossed paths and giving anecdotes about you know previous guests I've had and you know it's it's just amazing it's amazing that you know I'm a firm believer in six degrees of separation or less and you're a great example of that and I think my last question to you before we depart from this interview is that what's one thing that of everything we talked about, what is one thing that makes you happy or energized or you feel like is the most important thing that people can say about you that helps you make your job do well. And I was thinking when you were talking about trust with coach Williams, that people can say they trust Steve, you know, they, they may have disagreements, may not agree all the time, but, you know, each person, when they work with Steve Kirshner, they, they trust him and they know that what he says is his word. Is that one of the top things or if not the top thing that, you know, makes a difference for you in your job is that people trust you? That, that's, num that's easily number one. That, my integrity, uh, I, I, I have to, you know, there are so many times that people ask me, what's going on with a certain situation. There are times when I know what's going on and I can't say, I'm not in a position to say, but I won't lie to people. Because I, I learned early on in this profession, I was taught early on in this profession by good people that said, once you lose your credibility, you never fully get it back. I've never put out a statement for a coach, a student athlete, an administrator, that that person didn't sign off on. Now I'll write statements. Everybody in public relations writes statements for their principal. Um, sometimes you, you, they just say, hey, you put it together. Sometimes they may say, here's a couple of bullet points, you know, work off that. Sometimes you may sit down with them and they give it to you verbatim and they're like, don't change a word, maybe clean it up, you know, but I'll never put out, and I've never in 37 years of doing this, put out a statement for somebody under their name without making sure that they approved it, read it, was completely okay with it. Because the first time that someone challenges them about a statement and they say, well, I didn't, I didn't say that, that's something Kirshner wrote for me, I never get that back. You know, No statement that we ever put out again will people buy into 100% because they'll always wonder, well, is that the principal saying it or is that Kirshner spinning it? So that that integrity, I mean, there are times when media call me all the time, hey, can you give me a heads up? Is so-and-so playing? Is so-and-so committing? Is, is, you know, is that game getting canceled because of this? Are you guys going to hire this coach? And if I can say, I'll tell them. But a lot of times I can't 
but I won't lie to them. I'll just say, I can't tell you. And I, I do think that if you asked the media in our area, the national media, and said, you know, is, is when you talk to Kirshner, do you feel he's being straight with you? I, I, I feel very good that they would say yes, because I think that's, that's the, that is the bedrock of my credibility. And that's something that I, I, I hope never changes. Well, on that note, speaking about reputation and credibility and, and trust, I mean, those factors or those elements of a person's core being, those can only be maximized to its fullest extent in terms of your reputation, the trust, the accountability, the responsibility, like if you make good and you deliver each day and never compromise any of those throughout your whole life, then no one could ever say that you did not do your job or that you did not fulfill what you were supposed to fulfill. Because, you know, for people like you, people like me who have, you know, ethics and morals and values mean everything, especially on behalf of whether it's an alma mater you work for or a company you run or, you know, organization you're involved in. I mean, leaders and organizations, you know, not only do they have to always put themselves in a position to succeed and to lead a team and uh, never um, lower their standards by any means, you just have to have the, the mental fortitude and be a certain type of person where that goes without question, that goes without saying, there, there's no doubt that that would ever happen because it's who you are and who you've become. And I think that you have already proven year after year, decade after decade, that no one would ever question those characteristics of yours because you have so many people who have worked with you and so many people who have can vouch for your, can vouch for your um, reputation. I appreciate that. So I really appreciate you being a yeah, guest. Yeah, thank you. On, I enjoyed it. Yes, I appreciate you being a guest on Wave Capital's guest speaker series on relationship building in a team environment. And, um, you know, it excites me and I have a passion to do this podcast and I have a broadcast journalism background and to be able to, you know, re reduce all of this to a, to a book, you know, because I consider myself a leader and I consider myself to be somebody who, you know, I'll let people speak for me about, you know, my character and, and you know, what matters to me most is making sure that, you know, I can be a resource to anybody, help anybody, you know, and always do it to the highest of integrity and morals that I've always done. So, and ethics. So I, I'm happy to talk to Keep people like yourself. Way. Huh? Keep doing it that way. Absolutely. And likewise to you. And, you know, for all my guests, I mean, I'm glad that they really value that. And I think that's what makes my podcast so special is that people who think similar, you know, when it comes to those aspects of your professional and personal career. You don't have to agree on everything, but when it comes to your ethics, morals, and values, that's something everybody should agree on, that that has to be 110% at any given time. Well, Garrett, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, look forward to speaking with you soon, and yep. go Tar Heels. And coach. Yes, absolutely. I'll, I go look heels. forward. Yep, go Heels. Thanks so much, and take care, and look forward to talking to you soon. 
Thank you, Garrett. Take care. Bye-bye.